Good morning. If you'd open your Bibles up with me to 1 Kings chapter 18, I invite you to look there with me this morning. My name is Rusty Milton. I'm a pastor here at First Pres. It's great to be opening God's Word with you this morning, and I pray that He would nourish your soul the way He has me studying 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18. It's a big chapter. There's a lot here. Um, so I've cut it in half. We're going we're to talk about half of it today and half of it next week. And so let me just read, starting at verse, I'm going to start at verse 19, actually, and just read down to around verse 29. Now, therefore, Send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God and put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked him, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the blation, but there was no voice. No one answered, and no one paid attention. Let's stop there. Please pray with me. Oh, great Father, creator, adopter, savior, merciful Lord. We just praise you, we worship you. Father, there's so much here about who you are, your goodness, your grace, your mercy. I ask that we as a congregation would grow in a spirit, like Paul says, of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of who you are, and that would lead to greater worship and greater joy in knowing you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let, let me ask you this, where, where does favor with God come from? Where, how, 
how do you pursue favor with God? Where, where does that come from? Martin Bell, um, he wrote a book called In Harm's Way. He was a British journalist. He was writing about his life as a war correspondent, and this is what he says. I came to put much faith in certain routines and rituals which may be considered superstitious, but which nonetheless worked for me by carrying matters that were of life and death to me. These included a three-penny bit, four-leaf clover, five-leaf clover, a brass pixie, countless silver crosses and St. Christopher's, and tapes of Willie Nelson. He said, I carry them all, and who can tell which will work and which will not? Better be safe by accumulation than sorry by preferring one to another. And truthfully, when, when it comes to favor with God, all those are worthless, of course, except for the Willie Nelson tape. You know? <laughs> the question is, where, where does favor, the favor of God, come from? 1 Kings 18, Elijah tells King Ahab to get the, the nation together. And you remember, they've been in a three-year drought. People have been dying, starving under this king's leadership. And Ahab certainly thinks, okay, he's getting us together. He's finally going to end the drought. We're going to go. So he goes. And when they come together, Elijah looks out at the crowd, and he tells them, all the Jews there, get off the fence. I either serve Yahweh, the God of your people, the covenant God of your family, or serve Baal, the God of the nations. But you have to make a choice. Get off the fence. And what follows then is a bit of a contest as the priest of Baal and Elijah the prophet seek the favor of God in, in very, very different ways. The priest of Baal with their wild dancing, they're cutting themselves, their emotional screaming. Elijah through holding up to God his promises, making a sacrifice for the sins of his people and asking God to be true to his word and to work. And so I want to ask you, how, how do you find favor with God? Well, what is it that you feel like when you are out of the graces of God? What is it that you feel like you must do to bring you back into God's favor again? And the assumption of the prophets of Baal is God will work for me when I have passionate religious activity going on. And sometimes the church engages in what you might call evangelical Baalism, right? And what, you say, Rusty, what in the world are you talking about? Well, we believe often that God will work. He will answer my prayers. He'll meet with me. He'll forgive me. He'll do good things for me. He'll bless my life. He'll act when and only when my heart and my life are engulfed in passion for him, right? That when I am radical for Jesus and I am doing big things for him, then he's doing big things for me. So in pursuit of big, notable, experiential activities, the church gets exhausted. The church gets discouraged. Like one man told me that I was counseling at the time, he said, Rusty, I, I, I want to do big things for God, and so I set out on a healing ministry for years and years, and now I don't believe God exists because I never saw him work. 
But Rusty, are you saying, let's stop right here. Are you saying emotion is bad? Shouldn't we pray more? Shouldn't we have deeper worship? Shouldn't we love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength? Yes. God takes no delight in lifeless and indifferent worship. His purpose for my life is that I have a passion for his glory, particularly displayed through Christ. But we must ask, is your time in worship responding to God at home or in the church, is it a means of God giving you grace because of Jesus? Or is it a gimmick designed to manipulate God to act? That if I achieve a certain emotion, a certain fervor, if I'm frothed up, you might say, then I have God's favor. Then he'll act for me. Now, I want your affections, your heart, your desire, your love, your joy, your peace to be raised as high as it can be raised as long as those affections are set and pointing and looking to Christ. Right? And are not seen as a means to gain God's favor. Trying to gain what I already have in Jesus. So here's our main idea this morning, that we can't earn by effort what we already have by grace. We can't earn by effort, and I would say effort in worship, what we already have by grace. Now, there are two things that we're going to see here, and then there are several more we're going to see next week. First is this, verse 20 and 21, get off the fence. If you'd look in your Bibles with me. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer a word. Okay, let me, let me give you the context of, of what's going on here. Three years earlier, Elijah went to Elijah the prophet. He went to King Ahab, who's the king of the ten tribes, as Israel was split at that time. And he said, look, because of your terrible wickedness, God's judgment will be a drought of water and of word, the word of God, from your land. Ahab has been searching the whole known world for Elijah to kill him. And suddenly, Elijah just shows up. And he confronts King Ahab, and he tells him, gather all of Israel to Mount Carmel. And surely Ahab is expecting him, okay, the drought's over, the prophet's here, we're going to go. The suffering and death are going to end. And therefore, he obeys what Elijah says. And he gathers all of them, including the priests of Baal, to Mount Carmel. Now notice this, Elijah chose the place. He chose Mount Carmel. And we have these ancient records of an Assyrian king named uh, Shemanazer III. (laughs) And he calls it the Mount of Bel. He refers to Mount Carmel as the Mount of Bel. The mountain that was sacred to Bel and its worshipers. So listen, what is Elijah saying? What's he doing? He's saying, 
We're going to play at your stadium. That's what he's saying, right? You, you can have home court advantage in this contest. We're going to come to your mountain, to the mountain of Baal. And not just that, but you bring your whole team. You bring 450 prophets, the 400 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. Bring all your 950 prophets, and it'll just be me, the one prophet of the Lord. And notice then, what does he say to the Jews once they get on the mountain? There they are. They're all there. They're ready for the contest. Look at your Bible. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Notice those words, limping between two opinions. It's like us saying, how long are you going to sit on the fence? Is essentially what he's saying. It's either worshiping Yahweh or is it Baal? Baal to please appease Jezebel and win the favor of the royal court and king, the nation, and God because they knew they were his chosen and covenant people. Now he says, if the Lord is God, follow him. Elijah makes it very simple. Whoever the true God is, you must follow. But notice this. Elijah makes no room for multiple gods, right? There is only one true God. There are not multiple ways to God. You can't worship both Yahweh and Baal. If it is Baal, then worship him. But if it's the God of the Bible, repent and return to the covenant that he made with you by faith. So Elijah says to them, choose which God you favor, that you're seeking. You can't obey both. Now, my friends, this is exactly one of the biggest challenges that we face in our culture today, isn't it? We call it pluralism. It simply means that I want to have lots of options open. I want to have lots of choices available to me. I am the consumer. I want it my way. In all areas of my life, I want to have choices. I want to have options. I want to have lots of dishes available for me. I want the freedom to choose and then to change, to change my choice in everything. From the restaurants I go to, to my job, to my church, to my religion, to my marriage. The increase of choice and change in our culture has made words like commitment, or you must, or obedience, they're obsolete words now. They're very naughty words, actually, because they take away my choice. So what has become our chief value is keeping the option open. Personal freedom, personal choice. I grew up with a beautiful young girl. She was a friend of our families, and she got married to an awesome guy at a young age. And they seemed to have a great marriage. And then suddenly I heard that out of the blue, she divorced him after several years. And, and I was told, well, she just wasn't happy. Several years later, she married another man, the man that she was looking for. This man was not sweet like the first but he was strong when she was looking for. After several years again, I got another phone call that she was not happy. She divorced him. This pattern went on and on and on. Why? 
because after a certain period of time, she feels trapped, like she is losing freedom and choice. And her greatest value is choice, much more than commitment. The world says the same thing about God. It embraces pluralism, which says absolute truth cannot be known. It's another naughty word. So a doubting attitude to any assertion of absolute truth is the mature way to handle an approach to God. Therefore, all ways are valid ways to God because we can't know what is true and what is not. What God really cares about is just being a good person. Doesn't matter if you worship Baal or Yahweh. So today, people often don't choose between different religions. That'd be too much of a commitment. They choose elements they like in all of them, and they make their own. And so what we see is a culture and often a church now in search of experience because there can be no truth. Seeking a spiritual high and a system of worship that validates their own lifestyle and makes them feel in favor with God. And Elijah says, the very nature and claims of the God of the Bible are exclusive and are absolute. He claims to be the Lord, the creator of all things. And the only way to know him is to know him as Lord, the king, the sovereign over all things. And there is no other way to know him. Let's go to point two. Point two. Notice, Elijah makes this challenge to them. He says, make an altar on Mount Carmel, put no fire to it, cry out to your God to bring down fire. Verse 26 to 29, let's pick up there. And they took the bull that was given them and prepared it and called upon the name of Bel from morning until noon, saying, O Bel, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And as midday passed, and they raved up until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered no one paid attention. So notice, it's a challenge of fire. But here's what I want you to understand. It's not a challenge of power. So if you were to read this story up to this context, what you would expect is three-year drought. You would think Elijah would get up and say something like this. The God who can bring rain, that is the true God. No longer sit on the fence. But he doesn't, because Israel had already seen lots of supernatural things, and their heart was not repentant. What they needed was forgiveness. And so notice what he does. He says, prepare an altar and make a sacrifice on it. So the question is, who could forgive sin? Who could take this substitute and be the true God who forgives sin in a display of power? Does that make sense? Do you see how he's dealing with that? Who has the power to forgive? Now, notice what Baal does. 
They called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us, but there was no voice, no answer. So picture it. They're up on the mountain. There's all of Israel. There's 450 prophets of Baal on the mountain in front of the crowds of people. They are crying loud, praying, screaming out. Nothing. Now it's noon, verse 27. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep. Now, Elijah knew that Baal engaged in all types of human activities. They created a God in their own image. We have lots of ancient stories of Baal, and he's out hunting, he's on journeys, he's doing cool things like that. And so he reasons with them, well, maybe he's in the bathroom. God's got to go to the bathroom too. Maybe he's relieving himself. Or maybe he's out on a journey hunting. Maybe he's asleep. What you need to do is just cry louder so he can hear you. Up your game. So the 450 prophets then, they took out the swords, which was their custom, and they began to cry louder, and they began to whip themselves, and they began to cut themselves so that the blood was flowing like a river. They raved on until the evening sacrifice. They maintained a hysteria until late in the evening. It was religious bedlam. Religious fervor, earnestness, liturgical hoopla, all means nothing in having favor, having the love of God, and having his forgiveness. So come back to our question. How do you have favor with God? I want to read to you Deuteronomy 14 as we close. 14.1, what God had told his people. Listen to this. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Stop. You hear what he's saying? Don't count, don't cut yourself, for you are my sons and you are my daughters. You are my holy people. I have chosen you as my treasured possession. You can't earn by effort what you already have by grace, my fatherhood and my favor. Suppose that you are in Pakistan and you're walking down the streets in the midst of a crowd and a dirty teenage boy comes up to you, he does something like this. And you realize he's hungry, and you have some food, and so you give it to him, and he runs off. You'd want to bless him like that. That's fantastic. But suppose that same dirty street boy comes up to you, and he grabs a hold of your hand, and he says, Daddy, let's go home. Or... Come on, mama, let's go get in the car. What would you do? You might run. <laughs> or you might say, I'm sorry, you're confused. I'm, I'm not your father. I'm, I'm not your mother. Now, regardless of that child's desire, he does not have your favor, a right to call you father or mother. Suppose then this child comes up and he makes the signal, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And you begin to talk with him. You begin to hear his story. And you say, can we meet tomorrow? And you stay an extended amount of time there. You get to know him. 
and a husband and a wife decide that they will adopt this young boy into their home. You bring him into your home. You give him new clothes. You change his last name. Suddenly, he has your favor as a child. You have covenanted. You've promised to be his father. He has a right to look to you as a father and mother and say, come on, let's go home or let's go get in the car. So it is with God. The favor to call him father as his child, you and I are not born with. And the first step is not just to say we are his children or to start having religious fervor and think that that will bring him into favor. But it is to recognize that we are not sons of God by birth. We don't have his favor as children. Our worship is not a sacrifice on the altar to win God's favor and make him our father. Yet God has made a full provision for us to be adopted. Not through us doing for him, but through him doing for us. Christ Jesus is the promised king, the Messiah, the Savior, who came to be God's sacrifice for the worst of our sins. His death on the cross and his resurrection are God's atonement, his forgiveness, his washing, his substitute on the altar for my pollution. And the gospel says, by grace and through faith in him, I am adopted into his family. I am given the seal that I am his child, the Holy Spirit of sonship. I am giving new desires to worship him. He changes my heart and my direction in life. I have God's favor because I have God's son. My worship now is a response to Christ's sacrifice that brought me into favor with God. Not my own personal offering to win God's favor. Jesus has already done that. If you would, please pray with me. Father, I thank you so much. I thank you for the Savior who brought us into favor. All those who by simple faith and simple repentance look to Christ's work on the cross and receive him as Lord and Savior by faith. You adopt. You bring into your favor. You bring into your family we are justified, we're made right, we're made clean, we're sanctified before you forever. Lord, thank you and praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.